if it becomes routine or worse yet is strictly performative, then it has no meaning at all. It goes in one ear and out the other. Public land acknowledgements are meant to recognize indigenous communities. Now some tribe leaders are pushing for action rather than just empty words. It's Wednesday, March 15th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead on WBUR, nerves are a bit frayed on Wall Street after last week's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. A drop in shares of European lender Credit Suisse is sparking fears that banking turmoil is spreading around the world. And Governor Healy is ending the sweeping and controversial mandate requiring Massachusetts state employees be vaccinated against COVID. You'll hear why she's making that move. A chilly night ahead on this Ides of March, but there's no snow in the forecast. It's 4.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. stocks regain ground but still end the day sharply lower, reflecting fresh worries about the banking industry. NPR's Scott Horsley has new details. This new wave of nerves began on the far side of the Atlantic, where the big Swiss bank Credit Suisse revealed that it found material weaknesses with the internal controls used to check its financial reporting. That weighed down European bank stocks and fueled fears in the U.S. Financial markets here were already on edge following the collapse of two regional banks in the last five days. The federal government, including President Biden, has taken steps to reassure depositors at other banks that their money is safe. The Fitch bond rating agency says the average bank has seen less than 1% of its deposits pulled in the last week, only slightly more than during the 20 weeks before the bank failures. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. The Dow closed down 279 points. The U.S. is penalizing drug makers for charging prices that rise faster than the rate of inflation for certain people on Medicare. Pfizer tops the government's list of the first set of targeted drugs announced ahead of President Biden's speech in Las Vegas today. After decades of trying to take on Big Pharma, we finally, finally won. A new study shows that kids who live in low-income neighborhoods are at 60 percent higher risk of developing hypertension. NPR's Maria Godoy has more. Hypertension, also known as high blood pressure, is vastly underdiagnosed in children. When it begins in childhood, it can lead to organ damage and cardiovascular disease later in life. The new study looked at the medical records of more than 65,000 patients in Delaware ages 8 through 18. It found that youths who live in areas where things like housing quality and education were substandard and where unemployment levels were higher had much higher odds of developing hypertension, regardless of race or ethnicity. The only greater risk factor was a diagnosis of obesity. The findings appear in the journal JAMA Network Open. Maria Godoy. NPR News. After years of seeing some Houston schools in low-income areas perform poorly, the Texas Education Agency says it's taking charge of the public school system. Houston Public Media's Dominic Anthony Walsh reports it's receiving bipartisan backlash. For at least two years, voters in Houston won't have a say in who runs their schools. The locally elected school board members will be replaced by a group of state-appointed managers. Houston area State Representative Ron Reynolds chairs the Texas Legislative Black Caucus. They're not accountable to the community. There's no real accountability to the parents, the students, and other stakeholders. So we're disappointed, very disappointed. U.S. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Houston called for a federal investigation into the takeover, describing the move as unnecessary, unfair, and discriminatory. The state education agency says the intervention will improve student performance in low-income areas. I'm Dominic Anthony Walsh in Houston. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The city of Boston is partnering with the state to keep some addiction care services open a little longer. Boston Medical Center has been providing the services at the former Roundhouse Hotel in the South End. It's been helping many people living near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, commonly referred to as Mass and Cass. The hospital previously announced plans to shutter the site at the end of this month due to a lack of funding. Now the city and state are stepping in to fund services at the Roundhouse through July. Boston area researchers say opioid overdose death rates dropped in Massachusetts communities with programs to help people who have overdosed. Their study published today looked at so-called post-overdose outreach programs in 93 communities. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The study compared communities with post-overdose outreach programs and those without them. It found that communities with programs had 6% fewer opioid overdose deaths and a 7% reduction in opioid-related emergency calls per year. Dr. Alexander Wally with Boston Medical Center says the research is a step toward understanding what types of outreach are most effective. This is a positive sign, good news, and we should put more into understanding how these programs work and how to make them work as best as we can. The study appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Psychiatry Journal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The union representing Massachusetts state troopers is commending the end of a mandate that state employees be vaccinated against COVID-19. Governor Mara Healey announced today the requirement will be rescinded on May 11th. In a statement, Union President Patrick McNamara thanked the Healy administration. He says 20 troopers were fired or suspended since the mandate took effect in October of 2021. The number of power outages in central and western Mass from yesterday's nor'easter has fallen dramatically. There are now about 15,000 homes and businesses without power statewide. Eversource hopes to restore its customers' electricity by tonight. National Grid also says most of its customers will have power back by the end of the evening. Unitil says its power restoration efforts will last several days. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The low will be around freezing, could have some gusty winds, increasing clouds tomorrow. The high will be around 50. Cloudy on Friday with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. The high again around 50. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a week that began with the collapse of a regional bank in Silicon Valley, one of the largest banks in Europe is now in trouble. Credit Suisse, a major bank in Switzerland, saw its shares plunge as investors worried about its financial health following the failure of two American lenders. U.S. stocks dropped today. The Dow Jones ended the day down nearly 300 points. Global markets also reeling over contagion fears. For more, we want to turn to NPR's Rob Schmitz. He is in Berlin and David Gura in New York. And David, I'll let you kick us off. Why? Why are fears about banks now spreading globally, even though these two U.S. banks got rescued? So the bottom line is, Mary Louise, Wall Street is still not buying it, that the banking system is safe. As President Biden said on Monday, you know, what he said and the emergency actions the government has taken have not calmed investors who are still shell-shocked by what's happened over the last few days. There is still worry other banks may be vulnerable to collapse, even if there are no indications there are widespread issues. 
Today we saw shares of small regional banks sink again after they regained some ground yesterday. California-based First Republic Bank ended the day down more than 20%. But what supercharged today's sell-off, Mary Louise, what's really a very different banking story, one that's taking place in Europe with Credit Suisse? Yeah, well, let's hear from Europe now. Rob Schmitz, tell me a little bit more about Credit Suisse and what is happening over there. Yeah, Credit Suisse is, as its name implies, a Swiss bank. It's 167 years old. And just 15 years ago, it was the seventh largest bank by market capitalization in the world. But for the past several years, it's been in a lot of trouble. It's been involved in several scandals involving tax evasion, money laundering. The latest one saw one of its advisors go to prison for laundering money on behalf of a Bulgarian drug trafficking ring. And since last autumn, shareholders have fled with their money because there's a sense that the bank is poorly managed. So today's news wasn't a big surprise for those who've been watching Credit Suisse's ongoing decline. And it's important to point out here that this bank's problems are different from those that led to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Bank, yet the markets are reacting in similar ways. Well, and that is what's so intriguing, because when you say the underlying problems are really different at the American banks and Credit Suisse, yet we have this crash today in shares in Switzerland. Yeah, that's Why? right. The well, the, you know, the head of the Saudi National Bank, that's one of Credit Suisse's major shareholders, was asked on Bloomberg television whether he would be injecting more capital to help Credit Suisse. His response, absolutely not. And that led to a sell-off of the bank's shares. Now, the Swiss National Bank has assured investors it'll step in and provide liquidity to Credit Suisse if it needs it. But this news, combined with the U.S. bank failures, now seem to be scaring off European investors writ large. This is now spreading to other European banks. Germany's Commerzbank and Deutsche Bank are both down more than 9% today. French banks, BNP Paribas and Société Générale are down more than 10%. So this has triggered a massive sell-off, and we saw it reverberate throughout European markets today. Okay. So let's turn back to the U.S. David Gura, um, I'll ask the unanswerable. What, what's going to happen next? What are you watching for? Well, the Justice Department is looking into what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, and the Federal Reserve is reviewing the job it did supervising that lender. And on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are already debating new regulations. Senator Elizabeth Warren just introduced a bill that would restore parts of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act that Congress rolled back in 2018. All the while, small regional banks in the U.S. are trying to hold on to customers as they scrutinize and try to shore up their balance sheets. And the heads of many of these lenders are speaking out, trying to assure customers and investors that they're in good shape and that Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were very different animals in terms of how big their deposits were and who their clients were. Now, like Rob said a moment ago, what's going on in Europe with Credit Suisse is different than what's happening in the U.S., but its issues are exacerbating this kind of greater anxiety about the health of the broader banking system. Well, and I suppose it's worth stepping back even a little bit more and noting this is all unfolding at a time of, of some concern about the U.S. economy in general. There are all these doubts about the economy. The Federal Reserve is aggressively raising interest rates to fight high inflation, and there are mixed signals that strategy is working. Today, we saw retail sales have fallen after they surged in January. That's an indication the U.S. economy may be starting to slow as a result of those rate hikes. But while data have shown high inflation is easing, still nowhere near the Fed's target. I asked Karen Petru about the timing of this. She's an economic consultant with Federal Financial Analytics. There's never a good time for a banking run or a banking crisis. And no matter the economy, banking crises are macroeconomic death machines. The, the failure of these two banks and the intervention that we saw from the government, from the Treasury Department, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve, has made the Fed's job harder, given how delicate the economy is right now, Mary Louise. And the Fed is scheduled to start its next two-day meeting on Tuesday 
And now the stakes for that meeting are even higher. Rob Schmitz in Berlin, I'll give you the last word uh, in the minute or so we have left. I'll ask you the same question I asked David. Where do you see things going next? What are you watching for in the European economy? Well, Europe's economy is already weakened due to the pandemic and from the energy crisis that was sparked by Russia's war in Ukraine. So what happened today was in some ways bound to happen at some point. And it appears that Credit Suisse may have been a catalyst. There are also big concerns here in Europe about interest rates. David mentioned the Fed raising interest rates. The European Central Bank is expected to meet tomorrow to discuss a possible rate hike of a quarter to a half percent to try and get a hold on Europe's rising inflation. All in all, it is not a pretty picture here in Europe, and it's mirroring what's happened in the U.S. as well. All right. That is NPR's Rob Schmitz getting us up to speed on what's happening in Europe. He's based in Berlin. Also, David Gura monitoring Wall Street from New York. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. If you've attended a public event in person or online lately, say a theatrical performance, academic lecture, or even a corporate meeting, you've probably heard this sort of statement at the start. We want to acknowledge that the land where the Microsoft campus is situated was traditionally occupied by the Sammamish, the Duwamish, the Snoqualmie. Land acknowledgements are meant to recognize indigenous communities' rights to territories seized by colonial powers. But as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, some tribal leaders and activists wish the well-meaning but often empty speeches would go away, while others are now working to make them more useful. The debate around land acknowledgements is more than a niche issue. The pros and cons of these statements are the subject of many articles and social media tirades. They have even been parodied on TV in series like uh, Reservation Dogs about the exploits friend. of a group of indigenous teens. Today, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of this land, the Caddo, the Osage and the Muscogee, of course. But before them were our Neanderthal relatives. So acknowledge them. And before that, even the dinosaur nation, dinosaur Oyate, you know, before that, the star people. Kevin Gover is a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and undersecretary for museums and culture at the Smithsonian Institution. Like many of the indigenous people NPR spoke with for this story, Gover has misgivings about land acknowledgements. If it becomes routine, or worse yet, is strictly performative, then it has no meaning at all. It goes in one ear and out the other. Gover says the statements can also feel disempowering to the very people they're supposed to uplift. If I hear a land acknowledgement, part of what I'm hearing is, there used to be Indians here, but now they're gone. Isn't that a shame? And I don't wish to be made to feel that way. But other Indigenous experts say the statements do have value. Kutcher Rizling-Baldi is a member of the Hooper Valley Tribe and an associate professor of Native American Studies at California State Polytechnic University, Humboldt. She says if people are thoughtful about how they go about crafting and using land acknowledgements, they can provide a first step towards action. The land acknowledgements gets you to that start. Now it's time to think about what that actually means for you or your institution. What are the concrete actions you're going to take? What are the ways you're going to assist Indigenous peoples in uplifting and upholding their sovereignty and self-determination? Baldy demonstrates how land acknowledgements can be put to use in talks she gives around the country. For example, she used the land acknowledgement at the start of a lecture she gave at Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois last November to ask audience members to support an Indigenous community garden in nearby Chicago. 
Fawn Pochelle was in the audience that day. She put up a QR code for people to donate directly to the First Nations Garden. We literally paused so people could take pictures and create donations. Pochelle, who identifies as First Nations Ojibwe and is part of the community organization effort around the First Nations Garden, says her group received a couple of hundred dollars in unexpected donations as a result of Baldy's call-out during the land acknowledgement. And sometimes, land acknowledgements lead to more than one-off donations. In the spirit of humility and respect, we request that you join us in acknowledging that the land beneath our theater and our studios and throughout East Bay is Huchin, the traditional unceded land of the Lashan Ohlone people. This is part of the land acknowledgement that can be heard before every performance given by shotgun players. The Berkeley, California-based theatre company's artistic director, Patrick Dooley, who's not Native American, says having a land acknowledgement helps remind his company and audience of the privileges they enjoy. We're just here for a brief time, and a way we can really honour our opportunity to live wherever we live is to acknowledge and honour the people that came before us. The company developed its land acknowledgement three years ago in collaboration with the Segorite Land Trust, a San Francisco Bay Area nonprofit focused on indigenous land return. Karina Gould is the co-director of the trust and tribal chair of the Confederated Villages of Lishon Ohlone. When we work with people around creating land acknowledgements, it really has to be a reciprocal relationship. Shotgun Players takes the reciprocity seriously. The company pays a voluntary land tax of several thousand dollars a year to the Lands Trust and has offered the Trust tickets to performances and invitations to use its space. Gould says she'd like to see Shotgun Players do even more, including hiring Indigenous theatre artists. We're hoping that, you know, that it will be a long-term relationship that uh, our children will be able to say, hey, this started a long time ago, but we're still in this together. Shotgun's artistic director, Patrick Dooley, says he's of the same mind, but he admits he's done little to seek out Indigenous talent for his shows as yet. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 42 degrees in Boston at 419. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, was it a bailout or was it not a bailout? Experts who specialize in government bank rescues say what the government did to support Silicon Valley Bank is indeed a bailout. We'll take a look at the debate. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow closed down nearly nine-tenths of a percent at 31,875. S&P was down seven-tenths of a percent to close at 38.92. But the Nasdaq was up a fraction at 11,434. 
In other business news, a Cambridge-based biotech startup has new financial support in its search for treatment of fibrosis. Mediar Therapeutics announced today it's raised $85 million in new funding for clinical trials. The company was launched based on research that came out of the Mass General Brigham Hospital Network. Fibrosis is a scarring of organ tissue that prevents organs from healing properly. It can be caused by diseases such as hepatitis. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu slash MBA. It'll be mostly clear tonight, the low around freezing. Could have some gusty winds, increasing clouds tomorrow with a high around 50 degrees. Cloudy on Friday with a chance of rain in the afternoon, the high again around 50. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Ethiopia is hoping that today's visit by Secretary of State Antony Blinken will set the country on a more normal diplomatic path with the U.S. Relations have been strained by a devastating civil war in northern Ethiopia. Blinken wants to see more progress on the ceasefire, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. A Nobel Peace Prize winner whose image was shattered during the war in Tigray, Ethiopia's prime minister seems eager to turn a page with the U.S. Abi Ahmed says he agreed with Blinken to strengthen relations. The secretary put it this way. As I conveyed to Prime Minister Abi, uh, the United States, as Ethiopia's largest bilateral donor, providing over $3 billion in humanitarian assistance since 2020, we will continue to be there for Ethiopians. But he says before the U.S. will normalize relations and restore trade benefits to Ethiopia, he wants to see more progress toward peace in Tigray. By and large, uh, the guns are silent. Uh, Humanitarian assistance is flowing. Services are being restored. Secretary Blinken got a look at some of the international aid operations visiting a U.N. warehouse and spotting some supplies from Ukraine. He announced another $331 million in aid. Blinken was there with Ethiopia's finance minister, Ahmed Shide, who points out that the economy has suffered because of drought and the war in Tigray, which scared off donors. This already challenging environment has been exacerbated by the significant drop in external development assistance. With your visit, we fully believe that the the development partnership will be fully unlocked. He tried to reassure the secretary that Ethiopia will ensure accountability and justice as it implements a peace with Tigrayan rebels. Human rights groups are calling for outside monitors. Sarah Yeager of Human Rights Watch says atrocities are ongoing. We're really concerned that governments, including the United States, are going to if not paper over, then downplay the atrocities that have happened in Ethiopia in order 
to try to get it back on some sort of stable footing. Ethiopia is a key regional player, but Yeager is hoping that Secretary Blinken was more forceful behind closed doors in calling for accountability, especially in his meeting with Abiy. Prime Minister Abiy has a lot to answer for. And uh, if the United States is not going to have him answer for those things, I'm not sure who will. But he's got a long way to go to live back up to that Nobel Peace Prize that he received. Secretary Blinken is the latest high-level Biden administration official to visit Africa. Vice President Kamala Harris goes next as the administration ramps up its engagement on the continent to counter China's growing influence. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. American dissatisfaction is rising on both ends of the customer service line. Nearly three-quarters of Americans say they've had product or customer service problems over the past year. That's according to the National Customer Rage Survey, which tracks customer satisfaction and incivility. And on the other side, consumers are described as combative and aggressive. Amos Tanuma is the author of Waiting for Service, an insider's account of why customer service is broken and tips to avoid bad service. And he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, so just set the stage for us here. Exactly how much worse is customer service this year compared to last year? Yeah, you know, there are several ratings agencies, but it is anywhere from five to 10 percentage points worse versus a year ago. Now, keep in mind, this is customers' perceptions of how um, customer service is going. If you survey, and many organizations like Glassdoor do, customer service professionals, they actually report even worse satisfaction ratings. So when you're thinking about the anger and the dissatisfaction on both ends of the customer service line, I'm curious, based on what you know, how much of this has to do with worker shortages? Yeah, I think that is definitely a contributing factor, but customer expectations have been rising. And for years, organizations have pushed customers into more and more digital channels. So you put those two things together, and then there's a worker shortage. We've gotten to a place where uh, this perfect storm has caused all kinds of chaos and confusion. So it's a contributing factor but I wouldn't, I wouldn't even give it 20% of the blame. So say we were to create something like a grace meter for customers who are looking to resolve an issue that they've had with the business. Exactly where do Americans on average start on that meter and how long does it take for that meter to start to plummet? You know, I'll tell you, Americans are incredibly gracious when they start. If it's on a scale of one to 10, uh, most people start at a nine or nine and a half. But then you start this interaction and you're met with an automated system, right? Uh, press one, press two, or a machine you're trying to communicate with that can't understand you. And then you get past that and then you give them your information and this is who I am. And then you finally get to a human and the human asks you to repeat your information. Now, your grace started at nine. At this point, you were at like a four. <laughs> and then, God forbid, they transfer you. By the time you are transferred after dealing with the machine, repeating your information, you are at a zero and lots of people are in the negative. So how much does a company stand to gain and lose from the social media reviews of service that someone might post on Google or Yelp or something like that? 
Yeah, the stakes are so high. I was writing the other day about the first ever recorded customer service complaint, and it happened in 1750 BC. A man was so upset, he carved a 294-word complaint on a rock. Unfortunately, you said that customers can broadcast their good experiences. That hardly ever happens. And they are real life consequences for these businesses, especially when they are in hyper-competitive industries. I'll give you an example. I had a bad experience with AT&T, and I tweeted at AT&T. I got a response back, not from AT&T, but from their competitor with a link for me to ditch AT&T and switch to their service. That's That's how high the stakes are. What do you think the formula is to keep customers happy and to make this a business where workers like those people who are behind all of these things that we need to live our daily lives can feel respected in the work that they do? First and foremost, your first customer are your service employees. I usually say customer service is harder than rocket science. And the reason it's harder is while there are formulas that can calculate putting a rocket on the moon, there is no formula for putting two strangers on the same phone call to resolve an issue. So we need to like change that social contract and not think about these employees as low-skill worker. This is extremely high skill, and the quicker we evolve as an industry, the better off we will be. Amas Tanuma is the author of Waiting for Service, an insider's account of why customer service is broken and tips to avoid bad service. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Francis Jacobson Early Childhood Center, where curiosity, compassion, and community build a foundation for lifelong learning. Located in the Longwood Medical Area, 10 minutes from Coolidge Corner. Now accepting applications for children ages 20 months to 5 years. Open house Tuesday, March 21st, 7.30 p.m. FJECC.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. When experts talk, we listen. So when our colleagues at NPR Music said this about rising singer-songwriter Tiana Esperanza... I don't think you're going to find more contrasts in a single record, maybe all We're going to be coming back to this at the end of 2023 and saying, was there a more arresting debut? We had to speak to them. That conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke today with his Russian counterpart for the first time in five months about the destruction yesterday of a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. The U.S. military was forced to crash the drone into the Black Sea after Russian fighter jets tried to intercept it near the volatile region in and around Ukraine. Here's what Secretary Austin told reporters after today's phone call. Russia is running out of capability and running out of friends. Putin has now had a year's worth of proof that the United States and the contact group will support Ukraine's right to defend itself 
for the long haul. The defense secretary says the U.S. will continue to fly and operate wherever international law allows, while Russia's foreign minister declared certain areas of the Black Sea off-limits to any aerial traffic during the conflict with Ukraine. U.S. regulators have green-lighted the first big railroad merger in decades. As Frank Morris of member station KCUR tells us, the combined company will stretch across the North American continent. The U.S. Surface Transportation Board has blessed a deal merging Kansas City Southern and Canadian Pacific railroads. Canadian Pacific fans out across Canada. Kansas City Southern branches out in Mexico. The two lines meet in Kansas City. Bill Vontuano, editor of Railway Age, says it's the final regulatory approval for something unprecedented. North America's first transnational railway will be created. It's an end-to-end merger. There's no overlap from Canada through the United States down into Mexico. There's a lot of opportunity there. The Surface Transportation Board predicts the new railroad will take 64,000 truckloads of stuff off the roads and create hundreds of jobs. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street amid new concerns about the banking sector in Europe. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is ending the state's COVID-19 public health emergency in May. That matches the federal government's timeline for doing the same. With today's announcement, Massachusetts will also end its vaccination requirement for state workers. Carlene Pavlos is the executive director of the Massachusetts Public Health Association. She says the end of the public health emergency should not mark a return to normal. Ending the state of emergency doesn't mean that COVID is behind us. People are continuing to get sick and to die from COVID. And for that reason, the state can't stop its work that to continue promoting testing and vaccination. Pablo says measures like mask mandates should still be on the table if we see another surge in COVID-19 cases. Newton officials are warning they may cut services for school students. The warning comes after a special election yesterday. City residents voted not to raise property taxes with a permanent tax override. WBUR's Samuela Petricelli has more. 53% of Newton residents who voted rejected a proposed $9 million tax levy to improve schools and other city services. Now, school officials say that leaves a budget gap. Interim Superintendent Kathleen Smith expects cuts to personnel and after-school activities. All the things that have been so richly enjoyed by Newton students for generations are going to see some impact at that level. Two questions on the ballot did pass. That means Countryside and Franklin Elementary Schools will see major upgrades to classrooms and other student spaces. School officials are set to present a new budget in two weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samuela Petricelli. The state is moving forward with an $85 million project to make safety repairs to the Mass Pike Viaduct in Alston. Some neighbors in the area oppose the work and think it will delay plans to eventually replace the bridge. Massachusetts Department of Transportation officials say the structure needs critical repairs because it has broken and corroding deck joints and is in need of new concrete. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu.
Sports, the Celtics take on the Timberwolves tonight in Minnesota. The Red Sox trounce the Rays in preseason baseball action 9-1, to the final score in Fort Myers. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The low around freezing could have some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow, the high around 50. It'll be cloudy on Friday with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. The highs again will be around 50 degrees. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Biden administration has been avoiding one particular word in describing its effort to rescue Silicon Valley Bank customers. Bailout. Federal regulators say they are backstopping all deposits in the failed Silicon Valley Bank without using taxpayer money. But does that mean it's not a bailout? NPR's Bobby Allen joins us to discuss. And Bobby, the federal government has taken some pretty extraordinary measures to save these customers. Can you just start by explaining what exactly the regulators have done? Yeah, sure. So in essence, Treasury officials made the banks customers whole. So regardless of how much money you have in your Silicon Valley bank account, you are now guaranteed to get your money back. And this was a huge deal because federal deposit insurance is normally capped at $250,000. And you might think, why not? Wow, well, that sure is a lot of money to have in a bank account, yeah. right? And it is. But the majority of Silicon Bank Silicon Valley bank deposits um, had more than that since their customer base, you know, they were these, you know, very cash flush tech startups and venture capital firms. OK, and so where is the federal government finding the money to do this? Yeah, they're using this big bucket of money that is the federal deposit insurance fund. And regulators are now also trying to sell the bank's assets. And anything left over will come from additional fees from banks, uh, which could ultimately be passed on to customers. Okay, and that, of course, brings us to the bailout debate. So since there's no taxpayer money involved, the Biden administration says this is not a bailout. But what do experts say? Well, I reached out to someone who knows a lot about bailouts, Neil Borofsky. During the 2008 financial crisis, Borofsky oversaw the $700 billion bailout of banks. I asked him, so... Did Silicon Valley just get a bailout? And he told me, if your definition is government intervention to prevent private losses, then yes, this is certainly a bailout. I also talked to Richard Squire. He's at Fordham's Law School and studies financial crises. And he said, yeah, investors and management are not being saved here. They are being wiped out. That's what most people think of when they think of bailouts, but... Most of the money that is provided to SVB, that was provided it to enable it to operate, didn't come from those sources. It came from depositors. And these are the venture capital firms and the startups, and they are being bailed out. There is no doubt about it. Okay, so I asked him, why then is the Biden administration so forcefully avoiding the word bailout? The term bailout has this connotation of rescuing fat cats, rescuing bankers. And so the government is desperate not to have that be the connotation here. Okay, so bailout, no bailout. 
I mean, some people might just see this as a semantic argument. Why does that matter? You know, Juana, it matters quite a bit politically. White House officials don't want to be seen as having propped up the mega wealthy tech and venture capital class, right? It also matters for how history remembers these actions. Looking back five, ten years from now, will we all remember this as a historic bailout of an industry or an emergency rescue effort that contained what could have been a meltdown of the entire banking industry? We shall see, but... You know, the fact stands that the federal government came in, waived the rules in place to give special treatment to the customers of Silicon Valley Bank, and all the experts I talked to agree. They say, yes, there was no taxpayer money involved, but this is still a bailout. NPR's Bobby Allen, thank you. Thank you. To Ukraine now, where the war has caused billions of dollars in damages to the country, to rebuild Ukraine will need money and also people. Because for decades, Ukraine's population has been declining. That's due to high high mortality, high immigration, and one of the lowest birth rates in the world. Now, this was all happening before Russia invaded. As NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports, solving the problem of Ukraine's demographics may be an even bigger challenge than winning the war. At a maternity hospital in western Kyiv, newborn baby cries echo across the long hallways, with portraits of newborns hanging on the walls. Dr. Yulia Hoda, who helps run the hospital, points out the empty baby beds in the hallways. The number of babies being born here at this hospital and across Ukraine has been cut in half since the start of the Russian invasion in 2022. This makes sense. There is a war going on. Partners are separated. More than 8 million people fled the country. But Dr. Hoda says even before the war, social and economic instability were driving the birth rate down here in Ukraine. Globally, Ukraine is just a very unique country. Brianna Pirelli-Harris is a professor of demography who studies fertility rates in Ukraine. The only country on the planet which had very low fertility and this kind of new modern outlook and then a war. (laughs) Research shows that to keep a population steady, it's necessary to have an average of about two babies per family, known as a replacement rate. In Ukraine, fertility rates have been well below that since the 1990s. Birth rates matter because the size of a population matters. Fewer people means a smaller labor force, fewer taxes to fund a government, which could make it far more difficult to rebuild the country after the war with Russia ends. So why were people not having more babies even before the war? There's a a pretty strong one-child norm in Ukraine where people really want to have one child. And then the real question was between having a second or even a third. It's a question Mikita Sitnov and his wife, Ala Pak, have wrestled with for years. They have a son who is seven, and they're not planning on having more, despite ongoing pressure from relatives. Now, I just think, okay, I have my kids, thanks God, but yeah, I'm not sure that I'm ready to go through this one more time. Mostly this decision today is uh, about the security and uh, future. Which has been tenuous at best over the last decade in Ukraine, first with the 2014 annexation of Crimea and fighting along the country's eastern border, and then last year with Russia's full-scale invasion. There is a constant thought that you wouldn't like your kids to uh, run and hide as soon as they hear the siren. 
or you don't want your kid to grow up in the environment where they have to spend half of their school day uh, in a bomb shelter. Mikita says long before last year, most of his friends weren't planning on having more or any kids. But there are people who are giving birth, despite the war. Back in that maternity hospital in Kyiv, there's a class for expecting families. Just four couples are enrolled, learning to swaddle plastic babies. Oleksandra Bilova and her husband Andri felt having a baby was an important act of perseverance and defiance. Uh, it's our nation, it's our future, and it's our love. If we will think about something that's going to happen, uh, we will never live normal life. It hasn't been easy to be pregnant for the first time under constant air raids and power outages. It's awful. Uh, actually, it's very awful. But when she thinks about what she's doing, she thinks about the future of her country. When babies born and when... Women, uh, when women uh, are getting pregnant, it means that everything is going to be okay, it seems to me. It would also mean Ukraine would have a chance to keep developing and growing. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Kyiv. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In the Christian tradition, the season of Lent is a time of reflection and repentance. For a growing number of people, it is also a time of downward-facing dog. Dina Pritchep reports on churches offering yoga as a Lenten practice. In a lot of ways, the yoga class at Resurrection Lutheran Church outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, feels like any other yoga class. The mats, the music, the settling into your body. Shift your weight to your right foot and move into tree pose when you're ready. But this is yoga devotion, a Christian yoga practice, led here by Karen Mahmood. Lent moves its way towards Good Friday, which of course is where Jesus is on the tree. So when you're ready, shift your weight to the left. A half dozen women are breathing deeply, envisioning themselves on a calm beach, but also envisioning that Jesus comes up and talks with them. We'll stay in this pose for another two minutes. You realizing that this conversation is what prayer is. Using a practice outlined in Hindu scripture to reflect on the life of Jesus may seem a little strange, but it's become popular in churches across the country. We need to take care of our bodies to be not only temples for God, but to be instruments of God's peace in the world. Megan Davis Brass is a pastor in Newton, Iowa, and serves on the board of the group Christians Practicing Yoga. I'm Presbyterian, so we still don't move much in worship. (laughs) But that's my chance in, in yoga to pray with my body. The word yoga comes from the Sanskrit for union, union between body and spirit, or human and the divine. You have yoga showing up in Jainism and Buddhism. Srina Gandhi teaches religion at Michigan State University. In this country, starting in like the 1970s, you had Jewish yoga. Uh, Right around the time of Vatican II, you had nuns practicing yoga. In some ways, this is how religious practice always works. It borrows, it exchanges, it grows. But Gandhi says there's an important difference between exchange and appropriation. You have to think about it in terms of who has power and who doesn't. Gandhi says adopting 
and adapting, the practice of yoga can bring awareness, not just bodily and spiritually, but also politically. If you can be okay with, you know, stretching your hamstring and feeling uncomfortable, why can't you be okay with stretching your mind a little and thinking about your power and privilege? While Gandhi sees the need for Christian yoga to consider the bigger picture, she also sees it as part of that picture. For thousands of years, yoga has used breath and physical movements to connect those who practice to something larger. And at Resurrection Lutheran Church in Minnesota, that's what's happening. It grounds me for the week. I attend church on Sunday, and I can hardly wait for Tuesday evening. Sue Sorensen has been coming to Yoga Devotion for five years. You're taking care of your body, and you're taking care of your faith and your spiritual life. And according to Pastor Megan Davis Brass, that's especially important during these 40 days leading up to Easter. Lent is a time when we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the resurrection of Christ, Christ who was born into a body, lived in a body, and then was resurrected into a body. The season of Lent starts with ashes and a meditation on mortality and ends with resurrection. Christian yoga helps those who practice embrace their faith with their whole bodies, acknowledging their strength and their frailty and their holiness, and prepare for new life. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchep. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for spending part of your afternoon with 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. It's 4.49. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, abortion rights supporters and opponents presented arguments before a federal judge in Texas in a case that could limit access to a drug used in nearly all medication abortions here in the U.S. That story is ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Red Sox won in spring training today in Fort Myers 9-1, to the final score over the Tampa Bay Rays. And the Patriots may be getting a new wide receiver. ESPN reports Juju Smith-Schuster is expected to sign with the Pats for a three-year deal. He spent the last season playing in Kansas City. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage tomorrow through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Congressman Seth Moulton has reintroduced a bill that would provide black World War II veterans and their descendants the GI Bill benefits they were denied. He joins us to talk about that, the recent bank failure, and more. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. No city in Ukraine has seen worse fighting in recent months than Bakhmut. As as Russian soldiers have advanced, volunteers have braved artillery barrages to rescue some of the remaining civilians from the city in the country's east. NPR's Frank Langfitt has this profile of one volunteer named Kuba. Kuba Stasiak is running through the rubble-strewn streets of Bakhmut. A shell has just hit a local university. Bright orange flames pour from the first floor. Kuba records it all on his cell phone. 
which sits snugly in the front pocket of his flak jacket. He later uploads the video to Instagram. Hello? Hello? Kuba's worried someone may be trapped inside the university. Ukrainian soldiers, they're hiding in nearby buildings, yell to him that it's empty. Kuba continues through the city, searching for a woman who was asked to be evacuated. Lilia! Lilia! There's no cell service Lilia! in Bakhmut. All Kuba can do is call her name. Shells fall every few seconds. Finally, Billy appears at her gate in a bright red coat. She's joined by a neighbor. Kuba calls fellow volunteers who arrive in a van, and they whisk Lilia out of the city to safety. Kuba is among dozens of volunteers who spent months evacuating people from Bakhmut in the country's Donbass region. About half the volunteers are Ukrainian. The rest come from abroad, including the United States, Britain, Sweden, even Russia. Kuba's from Poland. This morning, I'm riding in the back of his beat-up Lada, a rattle-trap Russian sedan that dates to the 1990s, as Kuba heads back to Bakhmut for another evacuation. We pass through the first of a series of military checkpoints. Basically a concrete bunker in the middle of the road and with tires on top, and there's a crane in the back that's building another, another pillbox. Kuba acknowledges that evacuating people is dangerous. In the last couple of weeks, we heard about a couple different volunteers that got killed. Uh, some of them we knew. There are so many casualties, so many dead people all around every single day in Bakhmut. But he says the work's rewards outweigh its risks. Kuba recalls rescuing an elderly woman from her frigid apartment. She was sleeping after like five seconds. She spotted my face. She started to cry. Everything is all right. Everything is all right, Kuba tells her. She took my hand. I got very emotional about it. She couldn't walk, so me and my friend took her to the car. And I had this impression that she really spent like months in her bed till this point. Like many volunteers here, Kuba is motivated by altruism as well as personal reasons. As for a young uh, boy, I was like always wondering what will be my reaction for the circ circumstances of the war. I wasn't so sure about it, and I just wanted to prove it to myself. And Kuba, who's 29, he's also ambitious. He used to work as a journalist in Poland, but editors were reluctant to send him to war. In the early days of this conflict, he watched other reporters begin to make a name for themselves. I witnessed many careers that were growing just because somebody decided to go uh, to Ukraine and to risk his life on a daily basis. My big heroes like, I don't know, Hemingway, Orwell, they decided to make, make the decision for their own and uh, they were just making their big careers. Both men served as volunteers in war. The experience shaped both their writing and their reputations. Kuba plans to use his evacuation videos as raw material for a book. Kuba and other volunteers say they were also drawn to Ukraine because they were dissatisfied with their lives back home. In my teenage years, I spent six years with depression. I was basically just a vegetable on a computer. Andre West is a 22-year-old from Germany. He used to work putting armor on luxury cars. Andre has spent the last year evacuating people in the Donbass. I just want to do more with my life and just use it. 
in a good way. Instead of being a vegetable, I can help people. That makes me happy. Andre says evacuations can be surprising and frustrating. He describes one rescue of an elderly woman. Everything was blowing up around us, and、uh, shrapnel was flying into the apartment. So we had to lay flat on the ground in the apartment. Andre had parked his car far away because the shrapnel on the road would have shredded his tires. So I had to run、uh, with this babushka all the way to the car. It was just two hundred meters, but these two hundred meters were just crazy. And yeah, at the place where I brought her, I got told that she has been evacuated eight times. Andre thinks the woman's family pressed for evacuation, but the lady never really wanted to leave. I was really, really mad that、uh, I risked my life and spent so much time on this woman. All right. Back in Bakhmut, Kuba has found his next evacuees, an elderly Russian couple, doctors. He records their meeting on his phone. They've been living in a basement for three months, but as they prepare to leave their home, probably forever, they're dressed in fur hats and elegant winter coats with fur-lined collars. They look as if they're heading to the opera. They moved here decades ago when Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. The woman insists she doesn't blame Russia, their former homeland, for the war. You must understand we don't have anything against Russia. Russia has nothing to do with it. We don't want our names disclosed. Who do you hold responsible for the destruction of Bakhmut? I believe both sides. Some who remain in besieged cities here in the Donbas are partial to Russia. Some are just waiting for the Russian troops to arrive. After a night in a refugee center, the couple board a bus that will take them away to a new life. As we wait to see them off, Kuba says he hopes the couple learns something along the journey. We will go to Poland or Luxembourg,、uh, whatever they choose. There will be no war whatsoever. They will see that like 99% of the population of Europe is just trying to help Ukraine, and maybe, just maybe, it will change. It will help to change the perspective. If it wants, I can do nothing about it. I'm just happy that they are, you know, made it alive. And with that, the bus heads out, taking the couple away from the war and towards Europe. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kramatorsk. A lot of the focus on the opioid crisis has been on rural white towns across the U.S., but some of the highest death rates have been in Native American communities. Hear how the Cherokee Nation is helping young families recover on the next Morning Edition. You can listen on air or online, or by asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com/wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services LLC. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. 
And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. It's just a minute before 5 o'clock. Much more ahead on All Things Considered. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll tell you about a new podcast which centers around a former homeless encampment outside the VA's gates in Los Angeles. That's ahead here on WBUR. Mostly clear tonight. The low will be around freezing. We could have some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow, the high around 50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The most concern is around, could this judge somehow take Mifepristone off the market altogether? Abortion arguments are being presented before a federal judge in Texas. The ruling could limit access to a drug used in most medication abortions in the U.S. It's Wednesday, March 15th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, we'll have details on the arguments being made before the judge. Also ahead, women's college identity is in focus. Wellesley College rejects a push by students to expand admission to transgender men and non-binary students. The latest storm in California has caused more flooding in some areas and brought strong winds. Some residents remain under evacuation orders. And the third and final season of Ted Lasso drops today. We'll hear from a TV critic with a preview. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Appearing in Las Vegas, President Biden today touted a new law lowering insulin costs for Medicare patients. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, it's the latest in a series of events aimed at boosting public awareness of what Biden signed into law. The event, with its bunting and a feel of a victory lap, had the vibe of a campaign rally, even though Biden has not yet formally announced a re-election bid. The fact it came the morning after Biden held a million-dollar DNC fundraiser underscored that feel even more. Biden talked up last year's law capping insulin costs for Medicare patients. I've been calling on my colleagues to cap the cost of for everyone. You know, including 200,000 children who have type 1 diabetes, who need insulin every day to stay alive. Biden also talked about his broader goal of upping funding for cancer research. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Las Vegas. Senate Democrats are calling on the National Transportation Safety Board to expand its investigation of train operator Norfolk Southern to include other major railroads. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports rail companies have been under intense scrutiny following the massive train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio last month. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling for a full and comprehensive investigation, adding that Norfolk Southern isn't the only rail company to neglect safety upgrades. Norfolk Southern is just one example of a dangerous industry-wide trend within the rail industry that puts profits over people's safety. In the last five years alone, there have been over 26,500 accidents 
in the rail industry. Schumer says he's working to advance bipartisan legislation that would set new safety requirements and procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials. The bill would also increase fines for safety violations. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. No worries about the banking system today after a warning from a big Swiss bank. NPR Scott Horsley reports that's weighing on financial markets. The market jitters were triggered when the Swiss bank Credit Suisse warned of material weaknesses in its internal financial controls. Confidence in the banking system was already tested by the collapse of two regional banks in the U.S., which prompted emergency actions over the weekend by the Federal Reserve and the FDIC. Retail sales dipped last month after a big jump in January. Spending was down in February at restaurants, department stores, and car dealers. But people spent more money at grocery stores and online. Wholesale inflation unexpectedly fell last month, mainly due to a drop in food and energy prices. That includes a 36% plunge in the wholesale price of eggs. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Some recovery on Wall Street today after a major downdraft. The Dow ended the day down 280 points. The S&P 500 closed down 27 points. The Nasdaq was actually up five points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Mara Healey is rescinding Massachusetts COVID-19 vaccination mandate for state employees. That'll end on May 11th. The rule went into a place into place on uh, in October of 2021 under former Governor Charlie Baker. In a statement, Healy says we now have the tools to manage the virus, and it's time now for the state to update its guidance. Yesterday's nor'easter spared Boston but dumped heavy amounts of snow in other parts of the state. The mayor of Fitchburg, Stephen DiNatale, says his city saw a foot of wet snow. The city deployed 50 crews for a plowing operation that will take several days. DiNatale says crews are still out working today. We had the usual phone calls this morning, people that needed more plowing done, and we uh, we address those as they come to our attention. Dean Natale says Fitchburg's hilly terrain makes it challenging to clear the roads. Statewide, about 14,000 people remain without power. Further north, tens of thousands of New Hampshire residents still don't have electricity. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has more. Following yesterday's powerful storm, about 100,000 customers are without power across northern New England, according to the website poweroutage.us. So crews have been working around the clock to reconnect electric customers. Parts of New Hampshire were buried by up to 40 inches of snow in one of the biggest winter storms in decades, knocking down tree limbs and tearing down power lines. Eversource says about 40,000 customers in the Granite State are without power and that nearly 1,000 crews, including some from Canada, are making progress. But it could take another two days before many customers are back online. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Cheshire County, New Hampshire. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell is threatening communities with lawsuits if they don't comply with a state zoning law. She announced an advisory today that the law offers no opt-out provision. The 2021 zoning law will require communities with T stations or with them nearby to allow multifamily housing developments. Holden Town Manager Peter Lukes has previously been vocally opposed to the zoning changes. He says he thought they were voluntary. Lukes says he and the Board of Selectmen will discuss whether to pursue legal action to challenge Campbell's interpretation of the law. 
In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The low around freezing. We could have some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 50 degrees. Cloudy on Friday. Chance of rain in the late afternoon. The high around 50. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she has found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III, only in theaters March 24th. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A federal judge in Texas spent four hours today hearing arguments in a case that could decide the future of access to the drug mifepristone, which is used in most medication abortions in the U.S. NPR Sarah McCammon was in the Amarillo courtroom and joins us now. Sarah, you were in court today. Take us there. What was it like? Well, just to kind of paint a picture, Juana, you know, Amarillo is a smaller city. It's the better part of a day's drive from the major cities in Texas, like Houston and Dallas. And it's a tiny courtroom. You know, it just seats a few dozen people. They allowed in a small group of reporters and members of the public. And some of us were lining up there around 5 a.m. local time. This was really important, though, because the judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, would not suspend courtroom rules that prohibit cameras or recording. He also refused to make a live stream available to the public. So the only way to know what was said was to be in the room for this very high-stakes hearing, which could cut off legal access to the pill mifepristone at a time when it's increasingly difficult to get an abortion in many states. Well, we are certainly glad you were there. What did you hear in court today? Well, the anti-abortion rights group who filed this lawsuit wants to force the Food and Drug Administration to pull mifepristone from the market. They say it was improperly approved. And it's important to know mifepristone was actually approved more than 20 years ago for use in medication abortion. It's been used since then by about 5 million people. Major medical groups say it has a very strong safety record, but it does bring about what is essentially a miscarriage, and there are sometimes complications with that. And that is what lawyers for a coalition of anti-abortion medical groups and doctors called Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine focused on today. Uh, One of the lawyers, Aaron Hawley, argued that doctors who are part of the alliance have been forced to treat patients who've taken mifepristone and are experiencing complications like heavy bleeding. She said in some cases they've been forced to provide a surgical procedure to complete the abortion, despite their deeply held beliefs. Now, in response to that, a lawyer for Danco, which is the company that makes mifepristone and has also joined with the FDA in fighting the lawsuit, uh, that lawyer noted that all drugs have side effects and suggested treating patients is a normal part of being a doctor in those situations. And Sarah, you mentioned that this group argues that the abortion pill was improperly approved. What's their concern? Well, one of, there is a, a long list of fairly technical concerns, and I won't get too deep in the weeds. They date back to when the drug was first approved in 2000. For example, they point out that when the FDA approved mifepristone, that approval relied on kind of an obscure regulation for drugs that treat serious illnesses. Alliance lawyer Eric Baptist really objected to that language and said, quote, pregnancy is not an illness, as he argued that the approval was improper. Now, lawyers for the FDA responded that pregnancy can be life-threatening for some patients, and they also said regardless of whether you describe it as an illness or a condition, the wording is irrelevant to whether or not the drug is safe. Okay, and what else is the FDA arguing? 
Well, the Department of Justice is arguing this case on the FDA's behalf, and DOJ lawyer Julie Strauss-Harris pointed out that mifepristone has been around for decades. She said taking it off the market would cause harm to patients who rely on it. Judge Kaczmarek noted that Republican attorneys general from more than 20 states, states that have tried to restrict abortion after last summer's Supreme Court decision, they filed a brief in the case, and they say that the wide, av- the wide availability of abortion pills undermines their state restrictions. So the judge asked Strauss-Harris what she made of that. She said, you know, that's beside the point. She said the FDA approval simply confirmed the drug's safety and effectiveness and doesn't require anyone to prescribe it or take it. And she said, quote, the plaintiffs are the ones who are trying to dictate national policy with this lawsuit. Sarah, you've been following this, and as you've reported, the federal judge who's presiding over this case has longstanding ties to conservative groups. Based on what you heard in court today, any sense of what's on his mind? Well, he asked a lot of questions, especially about how he might rule in the case. He seemed to be considering considering whether he should order the drug to be taken off the market right away or order the FDA to take some kind of other action. Lawyers for the FDA asked the judge if he should side with the plaintiffs to be precise and focus on addressing specific concerns. There are a number of ways the judge could rule whatever happens. It's likely there will be an appeal. NPR's Sarah McCammon in Amarillo, Texas. Thank you. Thank you. Wellesley College says it will not change its admissions policy to start admitting transgender men. That is despite a vote by the student body calling on the school to do so. NPR national correspondent Tovia Smith was on campus in Massachusetts today and joins us now. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So I would like to understand the backdrop here. Explain what led up to this vote. Well, what led up to it was a referendum that took place yesterday that can happen uh, once in the school year. So it was yesterday. And in some ways, what this is about is is the very identity of the school, which has been an all-women's college since it was founded 150 years ago. Um, so in that referendum, there were two parts. First, whether the school should stop saying women in its communications and use gender-neutral language instead. I spoke to a student who's non-binary, uh, Grace McCooey, who objects to messages like, Wellesley is a place for women who inspire. I felt like I didn't belong here. I felt like it was a mistake that they were looking to have a college for women and there are these trans and non-binary students that keep appearing. So to that, Wellesley president Paula Johnson says, yes, the college will do more to recognize gender diversity on campus. But the second part is the sticking point. That's the students vote to open admissions to transgender men, people who are assigned as female at birth and transition to male. Mm -hmm. To that, President Johnson is saying, no, Wellesley is a women's college. So only students who, quote, live consistently as women are eligible. And uh, under that, she includes non-binary students and trans women. Um, and also students who transition to trans men after admission. But Wellesley says it has no plans to change its mission as a women's college or its admissions policy. So I mentioned you were on campus today. What are, What is the conversation? What are people saying about all this? Mostly upset. The school's not releasing the vote breakdown, but students say the exit polls show it was 90% for admitting trans men and 10% against. Uh, this student, Kitty Boache, was typical of many that I spoke to, saying that Wellesley is already no longer all women because of those trans men who transition after enrolling and non-binary students. They're already here. Like, a lot of my friends don't identify as women. So, like, just excluding them in, like, the admissions policy is just like a, it's a transphobic policy. 
Tovia, what about students who agree with the president, who who oppose opening up admission to trans men? Did you speak to any of them? I spoke to one uh, who had qualms about changing the character of Wellesley as an all-women's college. She also felt it's wrong to be drawing a line between cis men and trans men in admissions. She says that doesn't help the cause of equity and inclusion. Um, But she didn't want her name or her voice being used on the air because she didn't want to be accused of being transphobic. And even those students in favor of admitting trans men acknowledged the risk of that. Here's how um, one student I spoke to, Gabrielle Schell, put it. We don't have a lot of dissent. We don't really allow it. People that are out of the majority are ostracized. So I I wouldn't expect someone, even if they truly feel that way, to even want to talk. Wellesley, of course, isn't the only single gender school dealing with this issue. How are other schools handling it? Many are taking the same position as Wellesley, not admitting transgender men, but in other cases, it's more like a maybe. Um, For example, Bryn Mawr College will accept students who identify as trans men as long as they have, quote, not taken any medical or legal steps to identify as male. So as they say, it's complicated. So real quick, Tovia, what are the next steps at Wellesley? Students say they'll continue sit-ins and protests, and the school says it'll do more to use more inclusive language, but it is sticking to the current policy of not admitting trans men. And PR's Tovia Smith reporting from Wellesley, Massachusetts. Thanks. Thank you. Climate change is happening too quickly for some of the trees in California's Sierra Nevada mountains. New research shows that one in five conifers likely won't survive the climate conditions that they now live in. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports on the fate of these so-called zombie forests. Even if you've never been to the Sierra Nevadas, you can probably picture the striking terrain. Ponderosa pines, Jeffrey pines, there's some Douglas firs in there as well. Um, And these typically large, tall trees and dominate these forests in the landscape. That's Avery Hill, who studied these trees as a graduate student at Stanford University. Hill and other researchers compared vegetation data from the 1930s to the present, and they found that 20% of the conifers in the California Sierra Nevadas are now a mismatch for the climate they live in. That means it's only a matter of time before these trees die out and get replaced with other types of plants. They're kind of cheating death in a way. We think of them as the standing dead. That's why Hill and others have started calling these areas zombie forests. And the reason these conifers are in such danger is because the climate has changed a lot. Temperatures are warming and there's less rainfall in these areas, which are also seeing an increase in wildfires and human activities like logging. So altogether, these drivers are shaping kind of the forests of the future. The researchers made maps showing exactly where these Sierra Nevada zombie forests are, and Hill hopes that'll help put climate change into perspective for viewers. It's not backwards looking like I think a lot of the kind of ecosystem change conversations are. It's forward looking and saying, okay, well, now what? Having the knowledge of what climate change will do ahead of time gives people a choice, Hill says. Try to resist or contain these changes or accept that they're going to happen. Joe Hernandez, NPR News.
The Best of Everything, a novel about young women working in Manhattan, was first published 65 years ago. The more time passes, the more you can see its imprint on other New York stories, from Mad Men to Girls. So why does the book continue to endure? Find out on our show tomorrow. You just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your member station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, California just can't seem to catch a break from all the rain that has saturated that state. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with K-I-S-S-I-N-G, a funny date night play and love letter to our city. Now through April 2nd, HuntingtonTheater.org. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow closed down nearly nine-tenths of a percent at 31,875. The S&P 500 fell seven-tenths of a percent to close at 38.92. And the Nasdaq was up just a fraction at 11,434. A financial technology company based in the Back Bay is cutting an undisclosed number of jobs. HomeTap tells the Boston Business Journal it will downsize its sales and operations teams. The company offers homeowners cash for a share of their property's future value. HomeTap says the cuts are needed because of challenging economic conditions that have made investors more cautious. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There's so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. You can download it at the App Store today. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The low around freezing could be some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow, the high around 50. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Nearly 4,000 veterans live unhoused in Los Angeles County. It is the largest concentration of unsheltered veterans in the country. Early on in the pandemic, dozens of them set up camp on a sidewalk in the wealthy neighborhood of Brentwood, a long row of family-sized tents, many bearing an American flag. The people who lived there nicknamed the encampment Veterans Row. People like John Raposa, Ryan Higgins, John O'Neill, Gabriel Phillips, and Scott Merrick. I was EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. I specialized in WMDs. My MOS is 8404. I'm a combat medic, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. Joined the Navy, became a corpsman, and um, uh, I was a combat medic. I was in the Air Force. I did two years. I am a veteran of the United States Army, twice war veteran. Army, yes. I I was trying to be everything that I could be. They started camping on this particular block because of what's right next to it, a nearly 400-acre gated medical campus run by the Department of Veterans Affairs. 
Raposa, a Navy veteran, camped at Veterans Row for more than a year. People don't understand, the Veterans Administration is a spikes-out organization. It's not a castle with an open gate. It's a castle with a gate closed and a moat and and crocodiles in the moat, and they're hungry, okay? And they, you know, they, you know, they raise the drawbridge up, you know, and up there with arrows, okay? That's what it is. For nearly two years, reporter Anna Scott of member station KCRW has been reporting on the residents of Veterans Row, the camp's rise and fall, and what it all says about how to end homelessness among veterans and non-veterans alike. Her new podcast is called City of Tents, Veterans Row. Hey, Anna. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. So can you just first tell us more about how this camp, Veterans Row, came to be in the first place? Yes, this was a very eye-catching camp, even in a city of tents. And it's not unusual to see some number of unhoused veterans around that VA campus going back years. But this particular camp dates back to about three years ago, so early pandemic. And it was built after the VA created a kind of unintentional precursor to Veterans Row when they started a government-run tent city on their property right next to this block. So this was supposed to be just an emergency shelter for unhoused veterans early in the pandemic. And I actually reported on that at the time and met a Navy veteran there who became a character in this podcast. He later ended up on Veterans Row, Jeffrey Powers. At the time, he told me that the VA campground was okay as an emergency shelter, but it wasn't a long-term solution. I find this frequently when in situations where it's government help, is that their mindset is not that of somebody from the perspective of the hospitality industry, but rather from the penal system. And it's really annoying because I'm not a criminal, I'm just homeless. So he was there. He was in a small tent that he had to crawl in and out of. It was uncomfortable because he had a knee injury. And what happened was a Vietnam veteran who lives in the Brentwood area was walking by. He saw veterans like Jeffrey crawling into these little tents. And he went to the VA and tried to donate a big walk-in tent. But the VA said no. So that resident went out to the street outside the VA and gave it to a homeless veteran who was camping there. And that's how Veterans Row started, and it grew from there. Right. And in this podcast, you also detail the long history of the campus. Like, can you just explain why this land was originally set aside for veterans and what's on it today? Yeah, this very large campus in West Los Angeles exists there because that land was donated more than a century ago by a wealthy widow to the federal government, specifically to be a home for veterans. At the time, this country had a whole system of what were called soldiers' homes. The campus today reflects what the VA mostly does now, healthcare, cemeteries, benefits. So there's a large hospital there and medical offices, along with some things that are unrelated to veterans. The VA rents some space to UCLA for a baseball field, for example. <laughs> Outside leases like that have been controversial and even led to a lawsuit some years ago. As a result of that case, the VA agreed almost a decade ago to house veterans on that campus again, as the land was intended for. But they are way behind on that plan. And in the podcast, we unpack why. Well, I understand that Veterans Row was disbanded in 2021. So where are all the veterans who used to live there living now? A number of them are in temporary shelters on that VA campus. Some have moved into permanent housing or plan to very soon. The VA just opened another building on that campus. So there's now a total of 113 apartments for low-income veterans there. But 
In a county with nearly 4,000 unhoused veterans, it's clearly a fraction yeah. of the need. For the veterans who do get to live there, though, it's amazing. They're on this park-like campus in West Los Angeles. They can walk to their doctor's appointments. They have a real community there. It really makes you see the promise of this campus and what it could be if the VA was following through more quickly on all of the housing it promised there. Yeah. Well, how much housing does the VA eventually plan to build there? I mean, how long would it take, too? Well, seven years ago, they came up with a plan to build 1,200 units on the campus. That was the promise. They were supposed to have more than half of those done by now. But as we were just discussing, they've fallen way short of that goal, Yeah, which is partly because of the nature of the campus. It's old. They had to do time-consuming environmental studies. There are infrastructure challenges. But my reporting over the last couple of years found that that glacial pace also has a lot to do with money. The VA, it turns out, did not budget one penny for this plan that they agreed to for a long time. Frankly, it just hasn't been a priority. And that actually says a lot about why it's so difficult to solve homelessness in general in this country. Absolutely. Well, I am wondering, Anna, because you cover homelessness in Southern California beyond veterans. And when you were reporting for this podcast focusing on Veterans Row, I'm curious, did you come across any solutions that could be applied more broadly, like to help all unsheltered people find housing? Yes, that's one of the interesting things about this story. So when you zoom out, this country has actually done a very good job dramatically reducing veteran homelessness specifically since 2010. A lot of cities around the country have ended veteran homelessness altogether. It's not because veterans are easier to house. It's because they got more help. So in the podcast, we look at exactly what that help was. Things like low-income rental vouchers paired with health care and other services, aggressive street outreach to connect people to those resources. And we look at how that could, in theory, be given to non-veterans, too. But we also get into what the roadblocks still are in places like L.A. County, where we have not only thousands of unhoused veterans, but nearly 70,000 unhoused people total. So many people. I mean, how feasible are those solutions you mentioned specifically for unhoused people who are not veterans, who who may not attract the same political and institutional support as veterans can? That is exactly why I make a promise in the very first episode that in the series you'll hear how we could end homelessness in this country, but also why it's so hard to do. We have a different social contract with veterans. Yeah. We could provide some of the same assistance to non-veterans, but we don't all agree that every unhoused person deserves the same help. Reporter Anna Scott of KCRW. Her new podcast is called City of Tents, Veterans Row. Thank you so much, Anna, for your reporting and for this conversation. Thank you. This is NPR News. And we appreciate you joining us this afternoon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, recession looms for Argentina as the country officially eclipses the 100% inflation mark. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The low will be around freezing. We could have some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 50. On St. Patrick's Day, Friday, it'll be cloudy with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 50 degrees, mostly cloudy on Saturday. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com When experts talk, we listen. So when our colleagues at NPR Music said this about rising singer-songwriter Tiana Esperanza... I don't think you're going to find more contrasts in a single record, maybe all of you. We're going to be coming back to this at the end of 2023 and saying, was there a more arresting debut? We had to speak to them. That conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Secretary of State Tony Blinken says there's been progress in implementing a ceasefire in northern Ethiopia. Blinken announced another $331 million in humanitarian aid, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary Blinken says he not only met with government officials and representatives of Tigrayan rebels, he also held talks in Addis Ababa with human rights activists. And what they reported to me is a very significant drop in human rights uh, violations and abuses uh, in Tigray. Uh, we've also heard that from, uh, from other sources. He says he wants to see more progress toward reconciliation and justice before the U.S. and Ethiopia can have more normal diplomatic and trade ties. He says he wants to see Ethiopia back in the U.S. trade program known as the African Growth and Opportunity Act. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The number of unlawful crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border remain near a two-year low in February for a second consecutive month. NPR's Joe Rose tells us the decline coincides with tougher enforcement measures from the Biden administration. Immigration authorities say the number of migrant apprehensions by the Border Patrol held steady at about 130,000 in February. That's roughly the same as January and a drop of more than 40 percent compared to December of last year. The number of migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela crossing the border remained sharply lower after the Biden administration announced stricter enforcement measures earlier this year. Still, the White House is bracing for a possible jump in border crossings. When the pandemic restrictions known as Title 42 are set to lift in May, the administration has proposed sweeping new restrictions on asylum to take their place. Joel Rose, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street amid new concerns about the banking sector in Europe. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Mara Healey is appointing three people to a commission tasked with overseeing the Department of Public Utilities. Environmental advocates have long complained the department isn't transparent and that it doesn't give enough weight to climate change and equity in its decision making. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, Healey expects her new appointees to change that. Jamie Van Nostrand, a law professor, will serve as department chair. Stacey Rubin of the Conservation Law Foundation and Cecil Fraser, the current acting chair of the DPU, will serve as commissioners. All three have experience in the energy industry and utility regulation. In announcing her picks, Healy said she wants to transform the department. She wants the DPU to help speed up the clean energy transition, focus more on equity, and staff up with experts in areas like transportation safety. In the past, the DPU has come under fire for its poor oversight of the MBTA and for giving utilities too much say in how the state phases out natural gas. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Miriam Wasser. The union representing Massachusetts state troopers is commending the end of a mandate that state employees be vaccinated against COVID-19. Governor Healy announced today the requirement will be rescinded on May 11th. In a statement, Union President Patrick McNamara thanked the Healy administration. He says 20 troopers were fired or suspended since the mandate took effect in October of 2021. The city of Boston has also dropped its vaccine mandate for some of its workers in an agreement with several unions. The unions represent some workers from the city's police and fire departments. Patrick Bryant is the attorney for the Boston Police Superior Officers Federation. The requirement that Mayor Wu purported to impose is for all intents and purposes, no longer in effect for our members, and it seems like no one else in the city either. Brian says as part of the agreement with the city, the Boston Police Superior Officers Federation will withdraw any appeal or court action against the city over the mandate. Because of legal challenges, Boston had not enforced that mandate. People now have more time to see the USS Constitution in Charlestown. As of today, Old Ironsides is open Tuesday through Sunday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's one extra day per week and two extra hours each day. The public can take a free self-guided tour. Sailors also give presentations on the ship's history every 30 minutes. The Constitution is the world's oldest commissioned warship still afloat. In sports, the Celtics will take on the Timberwolves tonight out in Minnesota. The Red Sox trounced the Rays in preseason baseball action. 9-1 was the final score in Fort Myers. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The low around freezing could have some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 50. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The latest powerful storm system to hit California brought more flooding, more power outages, and evacuations, especially in the central agriculturally rich part of the state. The storm is moving east, but the ordeal is not over for many rural California communities. NPR's Jasmine Garst is joining us now from California with more. Hey there, Jasmine. Hi. So it sounds like just a mess. Tell me about conditions in the state right now. It is a mess. Uh, Conditions remain serious in many parts of the state. Uh, Some cities have experienced damaging hurricane force winds. There's been mudslides. Let me just give you some numbers. Uh Over 140,000 people are without power. San Francisco International Airport recorded a wind gust of 74 miles per hour. That's hurricane force winds. And firefighters believe that's why glass came falling down from a downtown high-rise building. In Los Angeles, the National Weather Service said the city got just under two feet of rain. And statewide, there's still about 27,000 people who are under evacuation orders. Well, and some of those people under evacuation orders because their towns are completely underwater from, from the storms. Tell me about some of those places that have been flooded. 
Yeah, there's been such widespread damage, it's hard to focus on just one area. You know, we've heard about the small town Pajaro, where a levee broke and forced mass evacuations. The Central Valley has also experienced severe flooding, especially communities near the Sierra Nevada foothills. And, you know, these are major agricultural areas. Farming is a multi-billion dollar industry in this state. So even as the storm moves east, these communities are going to be grappling with its effects for some time to come. I mean, both workers and growers, uh, we're going into berry season, which is going to be followed by stone fruit and nut crop season. And we're still waiting to see the full picture of the damage of this storm. But with this kind of flooding and this kind of wind damage, many are worried it's going to be a very difficult time for a lot of California farmers. And it's already been such a difficult time for a lot of California farmers, right? Oh, absolutely. It's it's felt like it's just one environmental crisis after another for California farmers in the last few years. Uh, working under extreme heat, you have wildfires, drought. I mean, we're being hard hit by climate change here, and farmers are on the front lines. So what is the forecast? Is there any hope that things are, are going to start looking up in the in the short to immediate short to medium term future? Unfortunately, it's not good news. Uh, You know, one important thing to highlight is that California's Sierra Nevada mountains, they've gotten historic amounts of snow this year. I mean, the highest level in three decades. Now, when that happens, the runoff of water can be a lot more than just your regular rainy season or your usual snow melt. And historically, that combination, rain on top of large amounts of snow, has led to some of the U.S.'s most destructive floods. And so California is bracing for some really difficult weather conditions and another atmospheric river next week. And real quick, this is affecting places beyond California, right? Yes, it's already affecting Arizona and Nevada. Dallas-Fort Worth area and Texas could get damaging winds, hail, and even tornadoes next week. NPR's Jasmine Garst joining us there from San Diego. Thank you. Thank you. It is a great time to be someone who loves to play video games. The time has come. Now, as one, that's it. The gloves are coming off. This may have been a bad idea. I suppose we'll find out. 2023 has already brought just a ton of surprises from long-anticipated blockbusters to some completely unexpected hits. NPR staffers have been playing all of these games, and here to break it down for us is James Mastro Marino, who edits gaming coverage for NPR. Hey there. Hi there. So this has already just been a really unusual year in gaming. I mean, some of the hottest titles this year came as a total surprise. I'm thinking of Hi-Fi Rush, which I heard was kept secret until it launched in late July. Yeah, that's right. It came as a complete surprise and was really a hit. And that's because it's an unusual blend. It is a rhythm-based action game. So you play as this character who somehow ends up with an old school MP3 player in his chest. Hmm. And he's able to perform astounding feats so long as he does it on the beat, because the whole game is bopping to the soundtrack. Bring it on. 
it's just a breath of fresh air, and it's not the only surprise hit. There was also Metroid Prime Remastered, which Nintendo surprised us with. Yeah, Nintendo is having a really incredible year. I mean, there's a huge new Zelda game that's coming out in a couple months, and I think we've talked about before, I am a big Fire Emblem fan, and there's a new game there, and there's also some fun coming in the Kirby franchise. What do you think is worth checking out? Well, I think they both are. Fire Emblem Engage is the newest in that franchise. It's just really great combat, beautifully animated. Don't go looking for a deep story, though. You won't find it here. The bad guys are bad. Friendship triumphs over all, etc. The breaking of bonds can hurt, but when the bond is reforged, it comes back as strong as ever. But speaking of friendship, Kirby Return to Dreamland Deluxe is an exceptional game for four players and for families. It's great to just wander around this wonderful, cute world and to play these fantastic competitive mini games that come attached with it. So if we're talking about games of the year, we've got to talk about the game Hogwarts Legacy. There's been just a ton of controversy surrounding it and Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, she's over the years made a number of offensive remarks about transgender people. And in Scotland, where she lives, she's also opposed transgender rights legislation. And Harry Potter fans, well, they've really had to grapple with this. But what's the deal with this game? Yeah, so the deal is that it was hotly anticipated. It broke pre-sales records. But as you mentioned, this controversy just won't let up because while J.K. Rowling was not directly involved in the game's production, she does stand to make money off of it. And that's led to calls for a boycott. Meanwhile, the game itself, well, it really depends who you are. On the one hand, it offers this really beautiful version of Hogwarts, one that fans have been clamoring for. You get to wander the halls, learn spells. For those who need a refresher, step up to your broom. Say up. It's also more diverse than this franchise has ever been. It's got plenty hmm. of people of color. This series' first transgender character, though critics would say that she was shoehorned in in a response to the criticism. But whether this world still has any magic left in it after years of controversies, that's really up to the player to decide. And quickly, before we let you go, one thing I would love to talk about is just the world of indie games where I have been finding just a lot of enjoyment over the last few years. Any games that you and other NPR staffers think I should pick up to play? One was A Space for the Unbound. It's an Indonesian slice of life game. Another season, A Letter to the Future, is this beautiful bicycling and photography game. There's this contemplative dialogue throughout it. It's like reading a really chilled out N.K. Jemisin novel. All right, we'll have to check those out. That was NPR's James Mastro Marino. Thank you. Thank you, Juana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Around this time each year, women and girls from the Umatilla tribes in northeast Oregon gather wild celery. They say their ancestors come back through the plant, and the tradition marks the arrival of spring. The Northwest News Network's Anna King reports. Off a remote highway outside of Mission, Oregon, a crew of women and girls gets ready to dig. So if we're all ready, we all need to line up. As they line up oldest to youngest, some faces are missing, mostly the elders who used to lead this gathering of wild celery. COVID hit the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation pretty hard, 
Now it's middle-aged women like Trish McMichael towards the front of the line. They scramble up steep cliffs, sometimes using their hands as well as their feet. Woo, woo, woo. Turned it. Did you get one? Celery grows when there's still snow on the ground. The tops poking through between the rocks. It looks like small curly parsley with a white stalk. Oh, you want to dig that up? The group digs them up with metal rods called cuppins, gently moving the rocks back and forth to get at the plant. They're everywhere as I look down. Aren't they? We are very blessed this year. Very blessed. Trinette Minthorn has been coming to collect the celery since she was six years old. My dad's mother, um, she dug for a very long time until, you know, she couldn't, you know, get up the hills. And But she would come. She would sit in the car and ve- vehicle and watch us. And, you know, she was our cheerleader and our greatest supporter. Even though Minthorn is just 48 now, she took on much more responsibility after her grandmother's death. When she left us, it was, it was hard, but, you know, we had to continue with the work, you know, because that's what, you know, she taught us. These women describe each plant as a family. The grandparents are the old dead stalks from years past. The parents are tall and green. The children, tiny nubs. With climate change, the celery harvest is getting harder to predict, says Althea Wolf. She's here digging with her daughter. We used to eat the celery until about June, and it doesn't last that long anymore because it's so dry. So when you have bits of snowpack around, that's really good for the celery because it helps it just continue to grow and grow. Uh, You don't get that anymore. The women don't taste the celery right away. They bite into it after a big ceremony back at the longhouse when they say their ancestors and recent dead return through the plant to nourish them. Three-year-old Peepsh is here for her first ceremonial dig of Latit Latit, the wild celery, accompanied by her mother, Michelle Tyus. Say, we're happy to feed the people. We're happy to feed the people. Latit <laughs> This joy makes her elders smile. Soon, Peepsh will be called to move up in the line. For NPR News, I'm Anna King, outside of Mission, Oregon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Whether you're listening over the air or on our app, we appreciate you being here. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. It's 549. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so on WBUR, jitters are back in world markets as stocks drop amid fears over the banking sector. That and more still ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. The Celtics take on the Timberwolves tonight out in Minnesota. The Red Sox won at spring training today at Fort Myers 9-1 over the Tampa Bay Rays. Corey Kluber 
struck out six over five innings. And the Patriots may be getting a new wide receiver. ESPN reports Juju Smith-Schuster is expected to sign with the Pats for a three-year deal he spent last season playing in Kansas City. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Congressman Seth Moulton has reintroduced a bill that would provide black World War II veterans and their descendants the GI Bill benefits they were denied. He joins us to talk about that, the recent bank failure, and more. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The prices consumers pay in the U.S. are still going up at an annual rate of about 6%. Now consider Argentina, where annual inflation has topped 100%, according to figures released yesterday. It's one of the highest inflation rates in the world, and recession seems inevitable, as NPR's Carrie Kahn reports. Alberto Montiwan was thrilled as hair salon in the upscale Palermo neighborhood of Buenos Aires survived the pandemic. Everyone was cutting and coloring at home, he says, but at least they came back once a month, usually in a panic. They would say, help me, look what I did to my hair, fix it, he laughs. But the 51-year-old says he's not so sure he'll survive triple-digit inflation. We can't just raise prices. We understand what the people are going through, he adds. Shanira Sasson says she dreads the end of the month when her bills come due. The 41-year-old mother of two grabs a coffee with her kids at a sidewalk cafe. She knows she's better off than most, but she says you never know how much your electricity bill will be or how much her kids' school tuition will go up, and it does every month. She says it's all stressful, especially keeping track of all the new taxes and exchange rates levied by the government. There are different rates, like the blue one and the Qatari rate, she says, shaking her head. In its attempts to curb inflation, the government of leftist president Alberto Fernandez has capped prices and taxed others, especially transactions in dollars. They've been given colorful names. Blue refers to the black market rate, about three times the official one, and the Qatari rate is the tax on airline tickets. Many Argentines flew to Qatar for this year's World Cup. The population doesn't really trust or have any confidence on its own currency. Daniel Kerner is an analyst with the political risk Eurasia Group. The peso exists, but people think in dollars. Most big economic transactions are done in dollars. So it is a de facto dollarized economy. And it's an economy that is exacerbating inequality. Nearly 40% of Argentines now live in poverty. Successive governments, both left and right, have failed at economic policies and in the end resort to printing more money, which leads to higher inflation. On downtown's Florida Street, the dollar is dominant. While a couple dances the tango for tourist tips, you can hear the money changers too. 
Cambio exchange, they call out, not very loudly. Officially, Argentines are limited to changing the equivalent of $200 a month. On Florida Street, there is no limit. And that's critical if you're doing business with Denise Argian. She's a real estate broker, and she says she doesn't accept pesos. Simply, she says, because the dollar is stable, the peso isn't. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Buenos Aires. Ted Lasso has won over fans around the U.S. ever since he left Kansas and stumbled into the United Kingdom to coach UFC Richmond with his quirky combination of purpose, curiosity, and heart. I love you guys so very much. I'm free. One, two, three. I love you guys very much. The season three premiere airs today on Apple TV Plus, and as the show opens, Ted is hurting. Keely's off at her new PR firm, and Nate Shelley, Lasso's former assistant coach, is now at West Ham United, hoping to lead that team to victory. Rumor has it that this season will be Ted Lasso's last, so we wanted to mark what just might be the beginning of the end with freelance critic Laura Siricool, who is a big fan of the show. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. All right, to your mind, what do you think sets this show apart from other comedies that you watch? Um, I think, you know, Ted Lasso is this funny, happy-go-lucky guy that you're following, and he makes these jokes. But then when he goes home, he's dealing with mental health problems and grief and anxiety. And you're just like, man, this guy is so funny and so charismatic, but he is someone like me. Like, we see... Nate, played by Nick Mohammed, you know, he he's a timid guy, jokes around, and there's mo- funny moments for him. But then when you see him, like, get all serious, and it's so dark and deep regarding the, each of these characters, you realize they're just like us, where we have a facade of, like, of how people perceive us, but we're much deeper people. I know that you've talked about how you've liked the way the show handles mental health. Ted suffers from panic attacks, and one of the big plot lines is that he has to see a therapist to help him with those. I love that. I love that people who are successful, who seem like everything's going well for them, I love that we get to see that he's getting help. And I love the the interactions between him and his therapist because you see him like kind of trying to make jokes light of things when it's like so much deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think we all done that. I've done that with my therapist. Oh, me too. Where we use humor and then she's like, you're shielding it. And I'm like, no, no, this is just who I am. And she's <laughs> like, no, no. Like, I think that's just something that we all have done. And I'm so glad he gets weekly sessions because we get to just see like the other side of him with through his therapist. Sarah, like, you know. Oh, Sarah, Dr. Sharon Fieldstone played by Sarah Niles. She's Ted's therapist. Yes, she's such a great therapist. So I felt like, man, this show really, really cares about talking about this. You know, in this conversation so far, we've been pretty positive about Ted Lasso, the character, Ted Lasso, the show. But we should note that like any show, it's not perfect. There have been criticisms of the way that this show has written certain characters. What do you think? Any criticisms of the show? Um, Yeah, you know, I feel like there's only four people of color, main cast members who are people of color. Like this season so far, I felt like we don't really get to see much of them. I know Sam had a big backstory last season, and that's great. That's Sam Obasanya. He's a player from Nigeria. Yeah. Um, But I feel like a lot of the people of color this season are being pushed aside. Like with Nate, he's the villain. 
Um, and I'm, I'm glad we get to see layers of him and everything, but it leaves a bad taste in my mouth seeing a person of color be a villain among happy white characters. Um, if you're going to make one a villain, then you should highlight the others. So, you know, give us something more for the people of color that are not being antagonist. Yeah. All right. Lightning round last question. You and I are true believers. We love this show. We watch it. We sit down and binge the episodes. But for someone who has not seen this show, why should they tune in? Um, people should watch it because, yes, it's hilarious, but it's a life lesson kind of series where you're just like, oh, you know what? What would Ted Lasso do in a way? Because like a part of me is like when I'm get when I get mad, I'm like frustrated, and I'm like, oh, I think. It reminds me of this episode of him trying to deal with imposter syndrome. And I, I really love that I could take I could take something away from this. And I think people will too. And it'll make him think. Plus, football is life. <laughs> That's TV and film critic Laura Siricool. Thank you for talking Ted Lasso with us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local and global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, your call is important to us. Maybe we'll tell you why customer service is getting worse. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly clear tonight, low around freezing. Could have some gusty winds, increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 50 degrees. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. If it becomes routine, or worse yet, is strictly performative, then it has no meaning at all. It goes in one ear and out the other. Public land acknowledgments are meant to recognize indigenous communities. Now some tribe leaders are pushing for action rather than just empty words. It's Wednesday, March 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, nerves are a bit frayed on Wall Street after last week's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. A drop in shares of European lender Credit Suisse is sparking fears that banking turmoil is spreading around the world. And Governor Healy is ending the sweeping and controversial mandate requiring Massachusetts state employees be vaccinated against COVID. You'll hear why she's making the move. Some jitters in the markets over uncertainty in the banking sector. Marketplace is up at 6.30 with all the day's business news. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
The day after a U.S. drone crashed into the Black Sea, the Pentagon says the U.S. military will keep flying aircraft in international airspace near Ukraine. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin delivered this message to a call with his Russian counterpart. Secretary Austin told Russia's defense minister that the U.S. will, quote, fly and operate wherever international law allows. The phone conversation came a day after two Russian fighter jets intercepted a U.S. drone over the Black Sea off the southern coast of Ukraine. U.S. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, says one Russian jet hit the American drone, though he's not sure whether it did it on purpose. Was it intentional or not? Uh, don't know yet. We know that the intercept was intentional. Uh, we know that the aggressive behavior was intentional. We also know it was very unprofessional and very unsafe. Russia claims its jets did not make contact with the drone, saying it crashed on its own. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. A federal judge heard arguments today in a high-stakes case that could determine whether people have access to abortion medication, potentially blunting the authority of U.S. regulators. A Texas court judge raising concerns over whether a lawsuit from Christian conservatives aimed at overturning the FDA's more than two decades old abortion drug mifepristone should be allowed to proceed. The drug, when used with a second medication, has become the most common procedure in the U.S. to end pregnancy. The outcome of the case is being closely watched after last year. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The Senate has confirmed Eric Garcetti, the former mayor of Los Angeles, to be ambassador to India. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports on the 20-month process that finally installed the top diplomat. Eric Garcetti was nominated by President Biden in July 2021, but concerns about whether he knew about allegations of sexual harassment by a former top aide stalled his nomination. Garcetti insisted he did not witness or hear about any of the allegations or he would have taken action at the time. Three Senate Democrats voted against Garcetti's nomination, but seven Republicans backed it, giving him the confirmation. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer praised the Senate action. The United States-India relationship is extremely important and it's a very good thing we now have an ambassador. India is the most populous democracy in the world. And with rising tensions with China, some senators worried it was problematic for the ambassador's post to remain vacant for so long. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Fears about the health of the banking system have now spread to Europe with globally connected Credit Suisse, the latest bank to feel the heat. Credit Suisse stock price hit a historic low after the bank's largest shareholder, the Saudi National Bank, told news outlets it would not invest more money with a Swiss lender. Still a mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 280 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Greater Boston was spared, but thousands of people are still without power across Massachusetts in the wake of yesterday's nor'easter. Some of the hill towns of Western Mass were hardest hit. Reporter Adam Frenier visited one of them. Chester has about 1,200 residents. While the sun was shining, there was deep snow all around the center of town, and a few people stopped by the town hall, which is home to Chester's own electric company. General Manager Diane Hall said as of midday, about a third of its 700 customers were still in the dark. She said conditions have been tough for the three workers trying to bring power back. Obviously the snowfall is a, is a huge impediment. Um, trees down on wires, big trees, um, you know, can't get down into some places. There's, there's roads that only have two or three houses on them. Hall said many customers she spoke with were taking the power outage in stride, understanding it's sometimes part of winter in New England. 
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. In Lemonster, a few hundred households still have no electricity. Roads are clear in the area. But two of the city schools were closed today because they did not have power. Mayor Dean Mazzarella says he hopes there are no more unplanned days off. We're reaching that point now where all the uh, days figured into the calendar are gone. Some of these days are going to have to be added on to the end of the year. Statewide, about 9,500 customers remain without power. The city of Boston is partnering with the state to keep some addiction care services open a little longer. Boston Medical Center has been providing the services at the former Roundhouse Hotel in the South End. It's been helping many people living near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, commonly referred to as Mass and Cass. The hospital previously announced plans to shutter the site at the end of this month due to a lack of funding. Now the city and state are stepping in to fund services at the Roundhouse through July. Boston area researchers say opioid overdose death rates dropped in Massachusetts communities with programs to help people who have overdosed. Their study published today looked at so-called post-overdose outreach programs in 93 communities. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The study compared communities with post-overdose outreach programs and those without them. It found that communities with programs had 6% fewer opioid overdose deaths and a 7% reduction in opioid-related emergency calls per year. Dr. Alexander Wally with Boston Medical Center says the research is a step toward understanding what types of outreach are most effective. This is a positive sign, good news, and we should put more into understanding how these programs work and how to make them work as best as we can. The study appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Psychiatry Journal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is ending the state's COVID-19 public health emergency in May. That matches the federal government's timeline for doing the same. Massachusetts will also end its vaccination requirement for state workers on May 11th. That mandate went into effect in October of 2021. In sports, the Celtics take on the Timberwolves tonight out in Minnesota. The Red Sox trounce the Rays in preseason baseball action, 9-1 the final score in Fort Myers. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The low will be around freezing, could have some gusty winds, increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 50. Cloudy on Friday with a chance of rain in the late afternoon, a high around 50. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a week that began with the collapse of a regional bank in Silicon Valley, one of the largest banks in Europe is now in trouble. Credit Suisse, a major bank in Switzerland, saw its shares plunge as investors worried about its financial health following the failure of two American lenders. U.S. stocks dropped today. The Dow Jones ended the day down nearly 300 points. Global markets also reeling over contagion fears. For more, we want to turn to NPR's Rob Schmitz. He is in Berlin and David Gura in New York. And David, I'll let you kick us off. Why? Why are fears about banks now spreading globally, even though these two U.S. banks got rescued? So the bottom line is, Mary Louise, Wall Street is still not buying it, that the banking system is safe. As President Biden said on Monday, what he said and the emergency actions the government has taken have not calmed investors who are still shell-shocked by what's happened over the last few days. There is still worry other banks may be vulnerable to collapse, even if there are no indications there are widespread issues. 
Today, we saw shares of small regional banks sink again after they regained some ground yesterday. California-based First Republic Bank ended the day down more than 20 percent. But what's supercharged today's sell-off, Mary Louise, what's really a very different banking story, one that's taking place in Europe with Credit Suisse? Yeah, well, let's hear from Europe now. Rob Schmitz, tell me a little bit more about Credit Suisse and what is happening over there. Yeah, Credit Suisse is, as its name implies, a Swiss bank. It's 167 years old. And just 15 years ago, it was the seventh largest bank by market capitalization in the world. But for the past several years, it's been in a lot of trouble. It's been involved in several scandals involving tax evasion, money laundering. The latest one saw one of its advisors go to prison for laundering money on behalf of a Bulgarian drug trafficking ring. And since last autumn, shareholders have fled with their money because there's a sense that the bank is poorly managed. So today's news wasn't a big surprise for those who've been watching Credit Suisse's ongoing decline. And it's important to point out here that this bank's problems are different from those that led to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Bank, yet the markets are reacting in similar ways. Well, and that is what's so intriguing, because when you say the underlying problems are really different at the American banks and Credit Suisse, yet we have this crash today in shares in Switzerland. Yeah, that's wow. right. The, well, the, you know, the head of the Saudi National Bank, that's one of Credit Suisse's major shareholders, was asked on Bloomberg television whether he would be injecting more capital to help Credit Suisse. His response, absolutely not. And that led to a sell-off of the bank's shares. Now, the Swiss National Bank has assured investors it'll step in and provide liquidity to Credit Suisse if it needs it. But this news, combined with the U.S. bank failures, now seem to be scaring off European investors writ large. This is now spreading to other European banks. Germany's Commerzbanks and Deutsche Bank are both down more than 9% today. French banks, BNP Paribas and Societe Generale are down more than 10%. So this has triggered a massive sell-off, and we saw it reverberate throughout European markets today. Okay. So let's turn back to the U.S. David Gura, um, I'll ask the unanswerable. What What's going to happen next? What are you watching for? Well, the Justice Department is looking into what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, and the Federal Reserve is reviewing the job it did supervising that lender. And on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are already debating new regulations. Senator Elizabeth Warren just introduced a bill that would restore parts of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act that Congress rolled back in 2018. All the while, small regional banks in the U.S. are trying to hold on to customers as they scrutinize and try to shore up their balance sheets. And the heads of many of these lenders are speaking out, trying to assure customers and investors that they're in good shape and that Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were very different animals in terms of how big their deposits were and who their clients were. Now, like Rob said a moment ago, what's going on in Europe with Credit Suisse is different than what's happening in the U.S., but its issues are exacerbating this kind of greater anxiety about the health of the broader banking system. Well, and I suppose it's worth stepping back even a little bit more and noting this is all unfolding at a time of of some concern about the U.S. economy in general. There are all these doubts about the economy. The Federal Reserve is aggressively raising interest rates to fight high inflation, and there are mixed signals that strategy is working. Today, we saw retail sales have fallen after they surged in January. That's an indication the U.S. economy may be starting to slow as a result of those rate hikes. But while data have shown high inflation is easing, still nowhere near the Fed's target. I asked Karen Petru about the timing of this. She's an economic consultant with Federal Financial Analytics. There's never a good time for a banking run or a banking crisis. And no matter the economy, banking crises are macroeconomic death machines. The the failure of these two banks and the intervention that we saw from the government, from the Treasury Department, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve, has made the Fed's job harder, given how delicate the economy is right now, Mary Louise. And the Fed is scheduled to start its next two-day meeting on Tuesday. 
And now the stakes for that meeting are even higher. Rob Schmitz in Berlin, I'll give you the last word uh, in the minute or so we have left. I'll ask you the same question I asked David. Where do you see things going next? What are you watching for in the European economy? Well, Europe's economy is already weakened due to the pandemic and from the energy crisis that was sparked by Russia's war in Ukraine. So what happened today was in some ways bound to happen at some point. And it appears that Credit Suisse may have been a catalyst. There are also big concerns here in Europe about interest rates. David mentioned the Fed raising interest rates. The European Central Bank is expected to meet tomorrow to discuss a possible rate hike of a quarter to a half percent to try and get a hold on Europe's rising inflation. All in all, it is not a pretty picture here in Europe, and it's mirroring what's happened in the U.S. as well. All right. That is NPR's Rob Schmitz getting us up to speed on what's happening in Europe. He's based in Berlin. Also, David Gura monitoring Wall Street from New York. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. If you've attended a public event in person or online lately, say a theatrical performance, academic lecture, or even a corporate meeting, you've probably heard this sort of statement at the start. We want to acknowledge that the land where the Microsoft campus is situated was traditionally occupied by the Sammamish, the Duwamish, the Snoqualmie. Land acknowledgments are meant to recognize indigenous communities' rights to territories seized by colonial powers. But as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, some tribal leaders and activists wish the well-meaning but often empty speeches would go away, while others are now working to make them more useful. The debate around land acknowledgements is more than a niche issue. The pros and cons of these statements are the subject of many articles and social media tirades. They have even been parodied on TV in series like Reservation Dogs about the exploits of a group of indigenous teens. I want to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of this land, the Caddo, the Osage and the Muscogee, of course. But before them were our Neanderthal relatives. So acknowledge them. And before that, even the dinosaur nation, dinosaur Oyate, you know, before that, the star people. Kevin Gover is a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and undersecretary for museums and culture at the Smithsonian Institution. Like many of the indigenous people NPR spoke with for this story, Gover has misgivings about land acknowledgements. If it becomes routine, or worse yet, is strictly performative, then it has no meaning at all. It goes in one ear and out the other. Gover says the statements can also feel disempowering to the very people they're supposed to uplift. If I hear a land acknowledgement, part of what I'm hearing is, there used to be Indians here, but now they're gone. Isn't that a shame? And I don't wish to be made to feel that way. But other Indigenous experts say the statements do have value. Kutcher Risling Baldy is a member of the Hooper Valley Tribe and an associate professor of Native American Studies at California State Polytechnic University, Humboldt. She says if people are thoughtful about how they go about crafting and using land acknowledgements, they can provide a first step towards action. The land acknowledgements gets you to that start. Now it's time to think about what that actually means for you or your institution. What are the concrete actions you're going to take? What are the ways you're going to assist Indigenous peoples in uplifting and upholding their sovereignty and self-determination? Baldy demonstrates how land acknowledgements can be put to use in talks she gives around the country. For example, she used the land acknowledgement at the start of a lecture she gave at Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois last November to ask audience members to support an Indigenous community garden in nearby Chicago. 
Fawnpo Shell was in the audience that day. She put up a QR code for people to donate directly to the First Nations Garden. Literally paused so people could take pictures and create donations. Pochelle, who identifies as First Nations Ojibwe and is part of the community organization effort around the First Nations Garden, says her group received a couple of hundred dollars in unexpected donations as a result of Baldy's call out during the land acknowledgement. And sometimes land acknowledgements lead to more than one off donations. In the spirit of humility and respect, we request that you join us in acknowledging that the land beneath our theater and our studios and throughout East Bay is Huchin, the traditional unceded land of the Lashan Ohlone people. This is part of the land acknowledgement that can be heard before every performance given by shotgun players. The Berkeley, California-based theater company's artistic director, Patrick Dooley, who's not Native American, says having a land acknowledgement helps remind his company and audience of the privileges they enjoy. We're just here for a brief time, and the way we can really honor our opportunity to live wherever we live is to acknowledge and honor the people that came before us. The company developed its land acknowledgement three years ago in collaboration with the Segorite Land Trust, a San Francisco Bay Area nonprofit focused on indigenous land return. Karina Gould is the co-director of the trust and tribal chair of the Confederated Villages of Lashawn Ohlone. When we work with people around creating land acknowledgements, it really has to be a reciprocal relationship. Shotgun Players takes the reciprocity seriously. The company pays a voluntary land tax of several thousand dollars a year to the Land Trust and has offered the Trust tickets to performances and invitations to use its space. Gould says she'd like to see Shotgun Players do even more, including hiring Indigenous theatre artists. We're hoping that, you know, that it will be a long-term relationship that uh, our children will be able to say, hey, this started a long time ago, but we're still in this together. Shotgun's artistic director, Patrick Dooley, says he's of the same mind, but he admits he's done little to seek out Indigenous talent for his shows as yet. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. It's 619. Coming up at 6.30 on WBUR, it's Marketplace with all the latest business news. That's coming up in about 10 minutes here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the day mixed. The Dow closed down nearly nine-tenths of a percent at 31,875. The S&P fell seven-tenths of a percent to close at 38.92, and the Nasdaq was up a fraction at 11,434. A Cambridge-based biotech startup has a new financial support in its search for treatments for fibrosis. Mediar Therapeutics announced today it's raised $85 million in new funding for clinical trials. The company was launched based on research that came out of the Mass General Brigham Hospital Network. Fibrosis is a scarring of organ tissue that prevents organs from healing properly. It can be caused by diseases such as hepatitis. It's 621. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years. On stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, should be mostly clear tonight. The low around freezing could have some gusty winds. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 50 degrees. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Register for spring classes at newartcenter.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Ethiopia is hoping that today's visit by Secretary of State Antony Blinken will set the country on a more normal diplomatic path with the U.S. Relations have been strained by a devastating civil war in northern Ethiopia. Blinken wants to see more progress on the ceasefire, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. A Nobel Peace Prize winner whose image was shattered during the war in Tigray, Ethiopia's prime minister seems eager to turn a page with the U.S. Abiy Ahmed says he agreed with Blinken to strengthen relations. The secretary put it this way. As I conveyed to Prime Minister Abiy, uh, the United States, as Ethiopia's largest bilateral donor, providing over $3 billion in humanitarian assistance since 2020, we will continue to be there for Ethiopians. But he says before the U.S. will normalize relations and restore trade benefits to Ethiopia, he wants to see more progress toward peace in Tigray. By and large, uh, the guns are silent. Uh, humanitarian assistance is flowing. Services are being restored. We've got a couple of bags of rice from that, Ukraine yes. here. Uh, so... Secretary Blinken got a look at some of the international aid operations visiting a U.N. warehouse and spotting some supplies from Ukraine. He announced another $331 million in aid. Blinken was there with Ethiopia's finance minister, Ahmed Shide, who points out that the economy has suffered because of drought and the war in Tigray, which scared off donors. This already challenging environment has been exacerbated by the significant drop in external development assistance. With your visit, we fully believe that the the development partnership will be fully unlocked. He tried to reassure the secretary that Ethiopia will ensure accountability and justice as it implements a peace with Tigrayan rebels. Human rights groups are calling for outside monitors. Sarah Yeager of Human Rights Watch says atrocities are ongoing. We're really concerned that governments, including the United States, are going to if not paper over, then downplay the atrocities that have happened in Ethiopia in order to try to get it back on some sort of stable footing. Ethiopia is a key regional player, but Yeager is hoping that Secretary Blinken was more forceful behind closed doors in calling for accountability, especially in his meeting with Abiy. Prime Minister Abiy has a lot to answer for. And uh, if the United States is not going to have him answer for those things, I'm not sure who will. But he's got a long way to go to live back up to that Nobel Peace Prize that he received. Secretary Blinken is the latest high-level Biden administration official to visit Africa. Vice President Kamala Harris goes next as the administration ramps up its engagement on the continent to counter China's growing influence. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. 
American dissatisfaction is rising on both ends of the customer service line. Nearly three-quarters of Americans say they've had product or customer service problems over the past year. That's according to the National Customer Rage Survey, which tracks customer satisfaction and incivility. And on the other side, consumers are described as combative and aggressive. Amos Tanuma is the author of Waiting for Service, an insider's account of why customer service is broken and tips to avoid bad service. And he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, so just set the stage for us here. Exactly how much worse is customer service this year compared to last year? Yeah, you know, there are several ratings agencies, but it is anywhere from five to 10 percentage points worse versus a year ago. Now, keep in mind, this is customers' perceptions of how um, customer service is going. If you survey, and many organizations like Glassdoor do, customer service professionals, they actually report even worse satisfaction ratings. So when you're thinking about the anger and the dissatisfaction on both ends of the customer service line, I'm curious, Based on what you know, how much of this has to do with worker shortages? Yeah, I think that is definitely a contributing factor, but customer expectations have been rising. And for years, organizations have pushed customers into more and more digital channels. So you put those two things together, and then there's a worker shortage. We've gotten to a place where uh, this perfect storm has caused all kinds of chaos and confusion. So it's a contributing factor, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't even give it 20% of the blame. So say we were to create something like a grace meter for customers who are looking to resolve an issue that they've had with the business. Exactly where do Americans on average start on that meter and how long does it take for that meter to start to plummet? You know, I'll tell you, Americans are incredibly gracious when they start. If it's on a scale of one to 10, uh, most people start at a nine or nine and a half. But then you start this interaction and you're met with an automated system, right? Uh, Press one, press two, or a machine you're trying to communicate with that can't understand you. And then you get past that and then you give them your information and this is who I am. And then you finally get to a human and the human asks you to repeat your information. Now, your grace started at nine. At this point, you were at like a four. (laughs) And then, God forbid, they transfer you. By the time you are transferred after dealing with the machine, repeating your information, you are at a zero and lots of people are in the negative. So how much does a company stand to gain and lose from the social media reviews of service that someone might post on Google or Yelp or something like that? Yeah, the stakes are so high. I was writing the other day about the first ever recorded customer service complaint. And it happened in 1750 B.C. A man was so upset, he carved a 294-word complaint on a rock. Unfortunately, you said that customers can broadcast their good experiences. That hardly ever happens. And they are real-life consequences for these businesses, especially when they are in hyper-competitive Um, industries. I'll give you an example. I had a bad experience with AT&T and I tweeted at AT AT&T. I got a response back, not from AT&T, but from their competitor, 
with a link for me to ditch AT and T and switch to their service. Savvy. That's how. <laughs> that's how high the stakes are. What do you think the formula is to keep customers happy and to make this a business where workers like those people who are behind all of these things that we need to live our daily lives can feel respected in the work that they do? First and foremost, your first customer are your service employees. I usually say customer service is harder than rocket science, and the reason it's harder is while there are formulas that can calculate putting a rocket on the moon. There is no formula for putting two strangers on the same phone call to resolve an issue, so we need to like change that social contract and not think about these employees as low skill worker. This is extremely high skill, and the quicker we evolve as an industry, the better off we will be. Amas Tanuma is the author of Waiting for Service, an insider's account of why customer service is broken and tips to avoid bad service. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. GardnerMuseum.org.